Welcome to the Codcast, a weekly discussion about politics and policy in Massachusetts. I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine, and I'm speaking with a first-time guest, Kathy Judd Stein, the chair of the Massachusetts Gaming Commission. Great to have you with us, Kathy. Thank you, Bruce, and I appreciate you having me. So I used to cover the Gaming Commission a lot during the early days when the agency was charged with selecting casino operators. But since the selections were made, so Plain Ridge Park opened in 2015, that's the state slots parlor, MGM Springfield in 2018, and Encore in mid-2019, I've sort of backed off and uh, haven't, haven't paid attention as much as I probably should. Um, so I'm hoping you can catch me up a little bit today, Kathy. Um, you were named chair of the commission in early 2019. And I want to get a better understanding, sort of what's your personal philosophy with regard to casinos? Are you sort of agnostic as a regulator or do you think they're a great idea to open and have operating here? Or what's your take? Well, certainly I am as a regulator neutral. And in terms of um, the decision by the legislature and the governor to allow for casino gaming back in 2011, I certainly followed that. Um, I had an interest in, in, in the legislation as it was pending as an, as an economic driver for the, the Commonwealth to provide some crucial construction jobs and operational jobs in the future. And of course, revenue for the, um, the Commonwealth, but I also recognize that with the benefits of casino play comes some significant risk of harms. And I really appreciated the thoughtfulness of the legislature um, in, in terms of working in provisions to mitigate those potential harms. So in terms of whether I'm a gambler, no, personally, I'm not. My grandmother was a great bingo player, Bruce, and uh, she was French Canadian, and I would accompany her as one of her multiple uh, grandchildren. But other than that, um, I'm a little bit mystified by, by all of it, but luckily I'm with a team now who really enjoy training all of the commissioners and teaching us about um, gambling. But in terms of regulating, I'm agnostic and a neutral, but um, pretty, pretty rigorous regulator. That's your reputation. And, and I'm sort of curious as a regulator, you know, initially it was sort of a, the commission was launching a startup effort, trying to get these off the ground and getting them up as businesses. And you came in toward the end of that, uh, that effort. And now it's gone into this sort of management uh, op, of, of oversight of the, of the operators themselves, rather than picking them and getting them up to speed. And I guess I'm, what do you see your role as there? The way you answered the first question sort of makes it sound like you wanna make sure the harms caused by gambling are limited. But is your, your goal also to sort of make sure these businesses thrive, that they do well? You don't want them to fail and, and you know, that would be a disappointment for everyone, I would think. So how, how, do, you, how do you balance those two, two themes? Well, I think that you really expressed it. It is a balance. Um, I hear the word steady state, and quite frankly, Bruce, I am looking forward to a moment in my uh, time at the Gaming Commission to be part of a steady state. I came on at kind of um, a high profile time where the suitability of, of one of our licensees was um, was being uh, evaluated and, and uh, through a adjudicatory hearing process. And then of course, 
we got hit right with the uh, coronavirus. So in terms of really our steady state um, regulatory management obligations, we I can't say we're right there because there have been some, some real crisis, crises for us to navigate. And I can say that with my fellow commissioners and the, the great team, we are navigating them. Um, I, th I see the role and I appreciate the question. Um, <clears throat> we have right now, uh, two of the three category one licenses licenses have been awarded. And we have, of course, the uh, the uh, parlor, slot parlor um, in Plain Ridge Park Casino, category one, the sole license. So Massachusetts casino industry is is really well uh, uh, defined and, and with a limited number of coveted licenses. So our job is to provide strict you know, regulatory oversight and to ensure that the public's confidence in the integrity of the gaming industry. But we also are partners in a way with our licensees when they come to us for, for opportunities to ensure that their positioning um, for success in Massachusetts can, can be supported. That includes you know, how we evaluate requests for simple things like additional alcoholic uh, beverage licenses. Um, you know, we we don't know what the future will lie for each of our licensees, whether there'll be expanded options, but they, uh, by uh, statute, they have quarterly reporting obligations to us. And we really review everything from the uh, those kinds of regulatory requirements, as well as their um, requirements to their community and, and um uh, their surrounding host and community obligations and their obligations for financial um, the, uh, to make their financial commitments to the Commonwealth, as well as their um, their decisions on entertainment and uh, all of the um, ancillary benefits that the legislature really anticipated, Bruce, when they made when they really enacted 23K as such a comprehensive framework. So. Our oversight is, is certainly regulatory compliance oversight, but there is that you know, partnership for goodwill where we do want them to succeed. We do want the economic benefits uh, maximized. So uh, given that, now I haven't paid attention, so I'm, I'm trying to understand this a little bit better. When COVID hit, um, it wasn't long before most businesses uh, that were in that type of very customer facing orientation shut down. Uh, and so they shut down, I, I imagine sometime after March 10th, I don't, I forget when, and then they reopened in July, but they've been restricted about their, like any business in the state, they've been restricted about, you know, how, when they can operate, how they can operate all that stuff. But I haven't heard anything, whereas restaurants and all other businesses have been asking for help give us help, give us grants. And the Baker administration is providing some grants and, and whatever. Have, have we helped the casinos sort of weather this storm at all? Why? I know it's a, it would be the legislature that could adjust how much tax revenue they have to give, but have they been asking for help or do they need help? I, I'm just sort of wondering, COVID has been a tough time for most businesses. And these are businesses that thrive on people coming to them. So I was just, what's your take on that? That's a really interesting question. So just a little bit of background. Uh, <clears throat> we did, uh, and we had the authority to 
uh, temporarily suspend operations for the casinos when the public health metrics indicated that patrons and employees would be at risk. Uh, we were evaluating that as the, the reach of the coronavirus you know, became clear. And we were very fortunate that these three licensees that we regulate were really cooperative with us. They too came really a joint conclusion that it was time to temporarily suspend operations. So through a virtual um, public meeting on March 14th, a little bit ahead of the governor's orders, we did um, suspend, you know, we, we ordered the temporary suspension, orderly suspension, and they cooperated fully. We were able to assist through different um, technological uh, arrangements that we have, um, and they were shut down. You'll remember perhaps that they also, um, in many ways, kept their, the benefits for their, their employees. And in fact, one was able to uh, maintain salaries for their employees throughout the entire period. So they, um, what you're really touching on is the vulnerabilities that our, many of our small businesses were experiencing. Certainly the casinos across the globe, around the globe, were experiencing that. But when our three world-class licensees were selected, I, the commission kept in mind, would these organizations have the bandwidth, the resources, the business um, strategies, the know-how to be able to weather an economic or industry crisis. And I think what we're seeing um, is that these three licensees have the resilience um, given uh, how they have done during this period. They have made no requests that I know of anyway of the state. Um, certainly we negotiated um, in open public, two-day public meetings, our guidelines and restrictions to ensure an orderly, sustainable reopening. The governor had put the casinos in phase three. Uh, that, that process um, showed that there were business decisions that were needing to be evaluated in balance with the significant um, public health concerns. We were tough. And you know what? They, they came around and accepted and really... Um, our, our guidelines. And luckily, uh, those protocols were adopted by the governor as the industry standard. And perhaps because they were pretty rigorous, we've been fortunate that first off, the licensees have enforced them. There's been full compliance around enforcement. And we really have shown um, that, they're, uh, that these measures are effective. You know, we're knocking on wood every day, but they're, they, while we are you know, we monitor all of the compliance publicly. They, um, they've been great community partners. They prioritize the safety and well-being of their patrons and their employees. And um, they also have met all of their financial obligations to their surrounding and host communities. You know, your, your um, listeners might be interested in knowing that uh, Plainville receives over $4.3 million annually from PPC. MGM Springfield uh, receives over $23 million annually. I mean, uh, from um, MGM Springfield receives that. And then Everett receives over $25 million annually from um, uh, Encore Boston Harbor, all part of their community, um, uh, host community agreements. 
they met those burdens and they've also been making all of their tax payments and assessments in timely fashion. They took these obligations seriously and they've met them, notwithstanding really the pressures of the pandemic. But um, just common sense would indicate, um, so I remember now that my information is dated, but I remember when Wynn was starting up, Wynn Resorts and Everett, it was, uh, they were spending a fortune, not on the, only on the facility, but lavishly on employees and, and sort of the whole nine yards. And then to have COVID hit, now, as you say, it, it sounds like none of the casinos have asked for any break on anything and they're fulfilling all their obligations. Um, but they have to be, are they not losing money in, the, in this environment? How, how, how are they doing financially? Well, you know, I can't attest to their financial position. I'm careful to their public companies, but they, um, they of course, um, were relieved yesterday to get um, some uh, relief from the governor that lifting the curfew. I suspect um, the curfew was tough and casino having to close at 930 <laughs> is right. a little bit of an anomaly for their business. But I would say that, um, you know, they are they're, they were positioned to be able to withstand these kinds of crises and they're demonstrating that. They are eager like everyone else for this, uh, these vaccines to take effect and for them to be able to return to normal, figure out how society will uh, decide to be, you know, go back indoors for entertainment and uh, ramp up their, 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 their businesses again. But in terms of losing money, I know that in, in December, um, the, they generated $14 million in tax dollars. Your um, writer for Commonwealth, Professor DeBull, did a nice job um, in the January 19th um, column as he looked at um, machine uh, per day uh, spending. And he said, you know, notwithstanding all of the restrictions, People are going because probably because of the safety standards and they are getting some entertainment experience at the casinos. Um, I think that my back of the envelope uh, numbers show that, well, regardless of all the restrictions, um, they were probably averaging among the three about a 60 to 70% of December of 2019 revenues. So yep. they, people are going, they, you know, presumably because they feel safe, they can, they can't hang out um, at a bar. Now it's really restricted to active gaming. The uh, plexiglass that we've added, the social distancing that's required, the uh, table games are reduced in options, but it's only because again of safety concerns they're, they're being used. And I know that once, um, once we turn the corner and the public health trends lift, they'll be able to completely re-engage. Let me ask you a few um, shorter questions, I guess, not so broad. Um, no, no, not at all. Um, so I remember one of the conditions, uh, you, you mentioned that when you first came in, you were confronted with a big issue, which was there was this whole problem with Steve Wynn and he was leaving and that was Wynn Resort, was that company suitable to be a mass licensee? Uh, and I remember one of the conditions, you, you guys had some tough hearings uh, about that issue. 
and you wanted Matt Maddox to go through, he's the CEO of Win to go through some management training that, that he would have to go through. Has that happened? Has that, that, that all went off smoothly? Did that yeah, go? So, so we did impose uh, some historic fines and we did impose some very stringent conditions. It's funny that you note that one because in many ways, um, I didn't see that as punitive, but actually something that probably should have occurred um, for a CEO of such a multifaceted um, business at a time of crisis. So we thought that it was important for the board of directors to, to provide that to Mr. Maddox. And it's our understanding uh, that he, um, the, that they did engage a, a very you know, highly qualified executive coach and, and how many days or months or years they're, they're you know, providing that service. I, we don't care. We weren't interested in that. We were more really wanting to show that this is, this is a complex business um, and addressing some very complex HR matters, as well as just a, a, a very big uh, position uh, to take on. And the next big thing probably on your plate is sports betting. Um, not that it's happened yet, but the legislature clearly is sort of moving in that direction. At least that's what the signals show. Is that, I know you're a regulator, you're agnostic about this, but are you guys preparing for this? Because I think the Gaming Commission in, in the bills I've seen would be in charge of regulating it. You know, that's that's exactly what I would say. We don't presume anything. We know there's a lot of work on those bills. You and I both know, Bruce, that the sausage making is complex, so we don't presume that regulatory role, but we do see that certain proposals in the past and currently do assign that regulatory role um, of um, um, oversight of sports betting in the event it's legalized. So we, over the last three years, have been certainly monitoring developments of sports betting across the country. You know, meeting with uh, other regulators to learn about how they implement their state's laws and also looking at the, the uh, regulatory schemes of other jurisdictions across the country. So we are preparing and we, we want to be helpful to the extent we can be um, with the legislature or any other stakeholders. So we're preparing, but again, not making any presumptions yet. Okay. Um, and then I just... Uh... For most of our listeners, this is probably a peculiarity that they could care less about. But so a lot of the money that comes into the Gaming Commission goes out to all sorts of pockets, uh, local aid and, and here and there and everywhere. Um, but one of the ones that is sort of intriguing is there a, a good chunk of the change goes to racehorses and racehorse development in, in Massachusetts. And um, Massachusetts is struggling to have any racehorse operations across the state. As a regulator, you're getting this money. Is it time to say we don't need that money going there anymore? Could it better be used somewhere else? Or do you feel like there is a future for racehorses in Massachusetts, race, racetracks? Well, first off, um, I just want to say that that horse race development fund, which is part of the statutory scheme, does support both thoroughbred and standard bred um, horse racing. And the standard bred horse racing program is doing really well. It seems as though that fund has accomplished the goal of not only supporting that community, but also growing it. And I could give a ton of examples that support that. The thoroughbred community has a, a little bit of a, a, a big, uh, it's actually a big challenge because there's no thoroughbred um, uh, track right now. 
but the uh, fund also supports the breeding program. So the uh, racing committee by statute has done a thoughtful process of figuring out how to, um, how to uh, support the breeding program and at the same time be good stewards for that uh, fund. You know, I'm not gonna hazard a guess as to what should happen in the future. I just know that right now the Gaming Commission is the regulator of both standard bred and thoroughbred racing programs. Um, the standard bred program is providing a lot of ancillary opportunities for not just what happens on the track, but what um, all the uh, agricultural businesses that support horse racing from you know, the farms, of course, the veterinarians, the horseshoers, and then also the tack and feed shops and the fencing companies. And of course, there's a big commitment to preserving um, green open space. So on the standard bread side, where there's really a full race meat schedule, it's been very successful. The um, issue around a track is to really um, one that I can't, I can't uh, really hazard a guess. And for people that are not knowledgeable like me about this, the standard bread just for listeners is that where they have the buggy behind the horse and they're going around a track and Plain Ridge Park has a track at its facility. Thoroughbred is more like what you see the Kentucky Derby and uh, horses with riders racing around the track and uh, Suffolk Downs is now being redeveloped and there's a lot of talk periodically, but no, no pulling of the trigger on developing a new track. So that's what that's what thoroughbreds and standard breads, that's some people don't know the difference. And yeah, I, I mean, I had to learn the difference coming. <laughs> this is, this is an, an area where there was no background, but I, it's fascinating. And there's really historic significance to the um, horse racing in Massachusetts. So, um, you know, it's a great community. They're great advocates. Uh, I, I, I um, love to go to Plain Ridge Park Casino and, and watch the races. But the money that goes and that goes for the th thoroughbreds, I know that I remember there were all these meetings where they were trying to decide how much should go to one and how much should go to the other. Has it flipped now? It used to be the thoroughbreds got more money, and has it flipped now so that the standard breads get most of the money? And because there isn't really much racing going on for, for thoroughbreds anymore. Yeah, so this is a complicated process and, and it, it, the statute is not uncomplicated. So, um, but the way it works is that the Racing Development Fund uh, by statute has a formula and 80% of that fund, and your, your listeners might be interested in knowing that it's not appropriate from the legislature. These funds come through the casinos. Maybe you mentioned that at the beginning. They fund this development fund. 80% is dedicated to the purses for both breeds. And then this racing committee thoughtfully decides, well, what's the split of that 80%? And this year, they came to us with a recommendation of 70-30 um, uh, standard bread to the thoroughbred. 16% of the fund goes to the breeder programs, which I referenced and that again for both breeds. And that's also a 70-30 split. And uh -huh. then 4% uh, goes and again by statute to um, the horse racing community's health and pension fund. And that actually got split a little bit differently. That went 40 for the standard bread and 60 for the thoroughbred community to yeah. um, help them right now. The statute allows for um, the thoroughbreds to race um, outside of the Commonwealth. That of course presents 
you know, challenges because of travel, et cetera. They'd come to us in consultation. We looked, you know, very carefully to support the community in terms of the selection of a safe racetrack. Those options are are difficult though to find. So they are right now, the thoroughbred racing community facing a, a challenge. And of course it has a domino effect on the breeding program, which is a significant investment for them. So it is a complicated time for that community. But on the other side, the standard bred um, community really has reaped the benefit uh, um, or really the vision of the legislative legislative structure through that race development uh, fund. Well, Kathy, our, our time is up. Uh, I wanted to thank you for joining us today. And, um, and to our listeners, we'll see you again next week. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bruce.